Welcome to Montrose Bible Church. We're so glad you've chosen to join us as Pastor Matt and other church leaders challenge us with a message from God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew as Christ's conflict with the Pharisees takes another contemptuous turn. Already, they sneered at his ability to offer forgiveness, his association with tax collectors, and his observance of Sabbath rest. Now, they strike at the nature of his identity. Well, just in this chapter alone, Jesus has laid claim to several messianic titles. He has been called the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Servant of God, and the son of David. But as the crowds began to contemplate the embodiment of these titles in Jesus, the Pharisees introduced a new name to the mix. Not the chosen one or the savior of the world, but the emissary of Satan, a henchman of the devil himself. Turn with me, if you will. To Matthew chapter 12. And follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 22. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property, unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me, is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad, and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it 
in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. May God bless the reading of his word. Now this entire interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees centers around the issue of blasphemy. The uniquely outrageous sin of intentionally and defiantly speaking evil against the living God, mocking him and defaming his holy name. In the Jewish construct, it is an offense of the highest order, deserving the highest penalty. In fact, according to Leviticus chapter 24, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. The Hebrew people treated this sin with such gravity that any irreverent, insulting, or slanderous expression against God, any act of cursing, reviling, or showing contempt for God would cost the perpetrator his life. That's how serious a thing it is to speak ill of the Lord. And yet here come the Pharisees, denouncing his name and his character like never before. Not only committing the sin of blasphemy themselves, but causing others in the crowd to do likewise by casting aspersion on Jesus' supernatural source. That's the first accusation brought on by the Pharisees here. And it gives rise to an important question for all of us to consider. Is Jesus the son of David or an agent of Beelzebul? Take a look back at verse 22. A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed. And we're saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, as you have noticed, Matthew's account of the actual healing is incredibly brief. Here we have an unnamed man without his sense of sight or the ability to talk, most assuredly due to the corrupting influence of the demon that was inside him. And just like that, we're told Jesus cast the evil spirit out so the man could once again see and speak. That's all that we are told about this incredible miracle. Because it's not the miracle itself that captured the attention of the synoptic writers so much as it was the confrontation that followed it. On the one hand, we have the reaction of the crowd. Evidently, this man's deliverance left them astonished and amazed, causing them to wonder about the identity of this Jesus. 
Oh, this cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, admittedly, that question sounds a bit cynical when reading from the New American Standard Version. But that is a somewhat unfortunate translation. Now, in the original language, the question sounded a lot more like what we see in the NIV, the ESV, the LSB, or the KJV. Could this be the son of David? Can this be the son of David? Can this man really be the son of David? Is not this the son of David? Turns out, there's absolutely no cynicism in their question. Now, it appears many of them are beginning to sense the truth about Jesus. Wondering if perhaps they might be standing in the presence of the long-awaited Messiah right then and there. The miracle accomplished its intended effect giving rise to spiritual contemplation about the activities of Jesus and those promised to come at the arrival of the son of David. On the heels of this divine exorcism, the crowds were beginning to make this glorious connection. But just as soon as their hearts began to ponder the possibilities, just as soon as faith began to swell, the Pharisees throw the wet blanket of blasphemy over the entire affair. Is this not the son of David? Promised by God for our deliverance? No. No, this is an agent of Beelzebul sent by Satan for our destruction. Unable to deny that Jesus did indeed exhibit supernatural power. Power to perform miracles, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. The Pharisees came up with an entirely different explanation for the goings-on. Surely, No carpenter from Nazareth is yielding the power of the one true and living God. So this must be the work of Satan. Yes, yes, that's it. Jesus is casting out demons under the authority of Beelzebul, the prince of the demonic realm. Of course, their logic on that doesn't hold, as we will soon see. But these are the lengths that men will go to to deny and denounce Jesus as the God-sent Messiah. Yeah, I know what he did. I can't explain it away with any measure of credibility. But I don't want Jesus to be the Christ. I don't want to acknowledge his authority. I don't want to bow down and worship. I don't want to resign my will. And if he gets his divine abilities from the living God, I'm afraid I might have to. So, instead, I'll associate him with the other supernatural power that is active in this world. 
and tell the people Jesus gets his abilities from Satan. So what was that definition of blasphemy again? The uniquely outrageous sin of intentionally and defiantly speaking evil against the living God, mocking him and defaming his holy name? If Christ Jesus is in fact a person of the Godhead, then the Pharisees' words here certainly qualify. And by declaring their demoniac theory to the crowds, well, they just provoked a whole host of others to the sin of blasphemy also. How horrifying is that thought? That our proclamation, that our witness, that our words, if slanderous or irreverent, could lead others to so grave an offense. That's why you have to know the truth with certainty and proclaim the truth with conviction. Not only for your sake, friends, but as Paul warns in Romans chapter 2, verse 24, to keep the name of God from being blasphemed among the nations because of you. Do you see? This conflict with the Pharisees gives rise to these important questions. Is Jesus the son of David or an agent of Beelzebul? Is Jesus building the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan? Take a look back at verse 25. Knowing their thoughts... Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. Now Jesus responded to the Pharisees' indictment with a series of arguments from logic. The first one has to do with the issue of a divided purpose. He says, any kingdom, any city, any household that develops internal strife with its own members working against one another, well, that kingdom will very quickly destroy itself. And if that's true in all of the things we know about, then the same principle ought to apply to Satan's basilia. If the ruler of the demons was employing Christ to cast out other demons, as the Pharisees proposed, then Satan's kingdom would have already come to ruin by way of self-destruction. 
And sadly, we know that is not the case. At least not yet. Because contrary to what was suggested by the religious rulers of the day, Satan was not using Jesus to diminish his own influence on the earth. You don't have to be much of a theologian to know that doesn't make any sense. Something Jesus points out to them quite clearly. How can Satan cast out Satan and why would he? If he were to do so, he would be destroying his own kingdom, burning down his own house and bringing about his own demise. And not only that, if demons are cast out by way of Beelzebul, as you say, then wouldn't some of your own Jewish people have to be in cahoots with Satan too? Especially those Hebrews who were at this very time in history attempting their own kind of exorcism. Other than their mention in Acts chapter 19 verse 13, the scripture doesn't say a whole lot about these men. But extra biblical sources share lots of interesting stories about the casting out of evil spirits on the part of the Jews. If we follow the logic of argument number two here, then those people, your people, must be working under the influence of Satan also. Is that where the Pharisees want to plant their flag? No, I don't think so. No, a kingdom doesn't try to destroy itself. The Jewish exorcists are not at work building the kingdom of Satan. Nor can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property without first binding up that strong man. The logic behind Christ's third argument is pretty simple. If he were able to cast out Satan's demons, as the Pharisees just admitted he could, then Jesus had to, at some point, enter Satan's house and defeat him. And that's the only way you carry off someone else's property. By entering his domain, flexing your muscle, and demonstrating your power over him. Then, and only then, do you get to take over his house. And that's what Jesus was at work doing. Taking back the house by the Spirit of God. Are you there? And how you answer these questions, it tells you everything you know, need to know about your faith. And by your accounting, is Jesus the son of David or an agent of Beelzebul? Is Jesus building the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan? Are you for Jesus or against him? Those are the only options presented to us in verse 30. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. 
Now, you know, most people spend their entire lives convinced that when it comes to the faith, that there are three different categories of people. There are those who are all in on the Jesus thing. There are those who are all out on the Jesus thing. And there's everybody else here in the middle. People who are just kind of sort of okay with Jesus, but not in a way that would change the way they live. No doubt, most people spend their entire lives convinced that when it comes to the faith, there are these three categories. Like one of my own family members who said, I'm not a Christian like you guys are, but I think I'm Christian enough. That remains the prevailing sentiment among the peoples of this world. But Jesus knows nothing of this wishy-washy, kinda, sorta third group. He only ever speaks of the first two. Because though with some issues and people, neutrality might be possible, there is no such thing as neutrality when it comes to following Christ. That means if you are not actively, passionately, wholeheartedly for Jesus, then you are truly against Jesus with absolutely none of this middle ground. That's why the question is so critical. Which side are you on? I mean, not only does that communicate where you stand on the issue, it also demonstrates what your efforts on this earth are going to accomplish. And that's the second part of Christ's statement here, one that we often overlook. Not only does Jesus say, he who is not with me is against me. He says, he who does not gather with me is involved in the activity of scattering. I know this was originally addressed to the Pharisees, whose work to condemn Christ ended up scattering the true sheep of Israel. But yeah, the same thing is true today. If we are not promoting the name of Jesus, if we are not proclaiming the truth of Christ, if we are not gathering others in his strength and for his glory, then we are working cross-purpose with the Lord. Tearing what he would build, building what he would tear, scattering the sheep while catering to the goats. That's the modern church, friends. And the modern church goer. Not fully with Jesus, so by definition against him. Not really gathering, 
So scattering about. Are you there? Is Jesus the son of David or an agent of Beelzebub? Is Jesus building the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan? Are you for Jesus or against him? Be very, very careful how you answer these questions. Because as we see in verse 31, there is a lot on the line. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, before we get into the particulars of Christ's statement here, there are a few overarching truths that we need to recognize. It is clear, I would think, from this teaching that there are limits to God's mercy, that not all sin is equal, and that there is a certain offense that once committed can never be forgiven. All three of those acknowledgments fly in the face of modern church teaching. Yeah, but they are nonetheless true. And they all go back to this issue of blasphemy. As irreverent, insulting, and slanderous as blasphemy might be, that sin can be forgiven, uh, just like any other sin, when it is confessed and followed by genuine repentance. Even if, in the ignorance of your flesh, you have spoken a word against Christ, you can repent and be forgiven. Paul admits to as much in his own life, and he wrote to you, Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, he says, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now surely Paul is not the only one to treat Jesus with contempt prior to the Holy Spirit's revelation. And for those who blaspheme prior to the Holy Spirit's revelation, pardon remains possible. But not all blasphemies are spoken in ignorance. Not all blasphemies occur prior to the Holy Spirit's revelation. And that is where this all-important distinction is made. Now, to understand this more fully, we might consider for what purpose the Holy Spirit works in the first place. As Jesus states very simply in John chapter 16, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. I mean, that's what this miraculous exorcism was all about. 
Jesus casting out demons by the Spirit of God, as we were told back in verse 28, by the Spirit of God, so that everyone who witnessed this healing would know the truth about Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's job, friends. To shine a light on Jesus so all men will see his glory. The crowds saw the Spirit's revelation that day just fine. Enough to marvel at the possibility of the Savior's arrival. But they weren't the only ones in the audience. Now the Spirit illuminated the work of Christ in the exact same way among these Pharisees who now know without a shadow of doubt who Jesus is because the Spirit just revealed his identity to them. And still they blaspheme? After receiving the Holy Spirit's revelation? After receiving from him knowledge of the truth? All other sin has a chance to be forgiven. But for that willful, intentional, defiant expression of contempt, for that there is no pardon. Not now. Not ever. As the writer of Hebrews has said, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. But how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve? Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Who has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has insulted the Spirit of grace. For that, there is no forgiveness, whether in this age or the age to come. Yeah? Is Jesus the son of David or an agent of Beelzebul? Is Jesus building the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan? Are you for Jesus or against him? Be very careful how you answer these questions, friends. Because as we see in verses 33 through 37, you will be held accountable for your every word. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? 
For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It is not surprising that immediately after Jesus condemned the Pharisees for their blasphemies against the Holy Spirit, he would then teach about the importance of what comes out of our mouths. I mean, think about it. These men just spoke the most self-condemning words ever spoken. Words that sealed their damnable fate for all eternity without the chance of forgiveness in the future. Is it any wonder why the Lord warns the crowds not to speak that same way now? That's what Jesus is trying to impress upon his listeners here. That because our words express the nature of our inner person, including our thoughts, our attitudes, and our ambitions, that those words provide clear evidence of our spiritual condition. If the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart, as we're told in verse 34, well, then all I have to do is listen to you for a period of time, and I will know what your heart likes, what your heart values, what your heart prioritizes, and what your heart hates. If your words are good, revealing a heart that has been redeemed, then at the time of judgment, justification will be granted based on that evidence. But if your words are evil, Revealing a heart that is hard and hostile toward God, as was the case with these Pharisees, then those words will see you condemned. Either way, you will give an accounting for whatever it is that comes from your mouths. So let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. I said, a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Psalm 141, verse 3. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19, verse 14. Yeah. We have got to wade through these issues and give a response. Is Jesus the son of David or an agent of Beelzebul? Is Jesus building the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan? Are you for Jesus or against him? Be very careful how you answer these questions because you will be held accountable for your every word.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing the truth to us. We trust, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit that these words spoken so long ago come to life, pointed us to the truth about your son, Jesus. Lord, we know that 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 comes, Lord, with with a heavy burden. Lord, now that we know, we're held responsible for knowing. Lord, I pray that in our illuminated hearts and minds that we would never, never speak ill of you. That we'd never attack you, we'd never slander you. Lord, that we'd never question you in a way that would give rise to some type of scrutiny on our part because we don't stand in that place. I pray, Lord, that you would guard our hearts, guard our minds, guard our lips, that we might never blaspheme, certainly not against you once it has been revealed by your Spirit. We thank you for the Spirit and his work. Allow that to change our hearts for the good and for your glory. Lord, so we can use our mouths for a better purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Let that be true of every one of us. And keep us sealed by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for joining us. I trust you've been blessed by the study of God's word. For more information about Montrose Bible Church, visit our website, montrosebiblechurch.org.